Well, this morning being the first Sunday of Advent, and we lit the candle of hope, we are beginning a new Advent series entitled Christmas According to Isaiah. And I've entitled this first sermon this morning, Is There Any Hope? Would you bow with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this incredible story that is the story of salvation, that it began a long time ago, and yet we are still celebrating it, remembering it, and most importantly, being transformed by it today. And so I pray, Lord, that as we open your word, would you by your spirit speak uh, to each one of us, to our hearts and our circumstances. We pray, Lord, that your hope would shine through your word this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, many years ago, there's a true story that a submarine was rammed by another ship and quickly sank to the bottom of the ocean. The entire crew was trapped inside of that submarine, unable to escape. Many boats rushed to the disaster, but no one really knew what that submarine crew went through in those last few hours trapped underneath the water. Men bravely clung to all the oxygen that they could get until slowly they began to use up all of the oxygen They began to get lightheaded and delirious. Many began to pass out. One of the rescue divers who sent down to see if there was any way to extricate these men from within this submarine, he swam down next to the sub and he put his ear to the side and he listened and he began to hear a tapping noise. And someone, he he soon realized, was tapping out a sequence and the sequence was in Morse code. And the diver listened carefully to the sequence that was being tapped out And he quickly deciphered the message. It was in the form of a question. Is there any hope? Is there any hope? Repeated over and over again until it too stopped. Sadly for that submarine crew, the hope of being rescued had passed. All aboard perished. But yet their final question, repeatedly tapped out in Morse code, is the question of all of humanity. Is there any hope? Is there any hope for us today? Those of you who were in the adult Sunday school class this morning may have left with that question as well after we looked at the fall of man and what we deserve having gone against our God, our creator and maker. We have sinned against him and we are stuck in sin. And so the question is asked, here we are, trapped in this world, knowing death is our inevitable end, is there any hope? And so today on this first Sunday of Advent, as we have lit the candle of hope, we know that whatever hope there is in this world cannot come from ourselves, it must come from another source outside of ourselves. And so we, we look to God with this question in our hearts, is there any hope? And so turn with me this morning to Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, Bert read it for us earlier. In Isaiah chapter 7, one of the prophecies that has become synonymous with Christmas, and yet there's far more to it than just one verse. And so let's turn there this morning and begin reading in verse 7. Yet this is what the Sovereign Lord says, It will not take place, it will not happen, for the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. 
the head of all of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand firm at all. Who wants to explain this to us this morning? <laughs> That's what I'm up here for, right? Because if you just read this, it's confusing. You don't know any of these names or who these people are or what is being talked about. But continuing in verse 10, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, who here has heard verse 14 before? Yeah, most of us, right? This verse is synonymous with Christmas, one of the prophetic words spoken of the Savior. It's familiar to all of us that he would be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. But what most people are not at all familiar with is the first part of that story, which I read, the original context in which Isaiah spoke this prophecy. And so let me share with you a quick Reader's Digest version of this story with you. It's actually quite fascinating. The context of this story, the year was 760 BC. 760 BC, so 760 years before Christ was born. Now at this time, the Jewish nation had already been split in two for over two centuries, uh, over 200 years. And so there was the kingdom of Israel in the north, known as the northern kingdom. So basically, if you were to look at a map, Jerusalem is more or less in the center of Israel. And so just above Jerusalem was the dividing line, the, the border, if you will. And so in the north, it was called the kingdom of Israel. And in the south, with Jerusalem as its capital city, became known as Judah. Now, Israel in the north made the city of Samaria their capital city during this period of the divided kingdoms. And so during this time... The kingdom of the north in Israel had fallen almost entirely into apostasy, into idolatry of every type and stripe, and it was only one evil king after another. And these evil kings did what was wicked in the sight of the Lord. They led the nation into worshiping idols and following all of their pagan practices, including even sacrificing their own children to the false god Moloch. Now, some of you are familiar with this, but for those of you who are not, it's quite chilling when you hear what they were doing. Because the idol of Moloch, which would be cast out of bronze, he would have his arms outstretched like this in front of him, these bronze arms, and a fire would be lit underneath these arms and underneath the altar, and so the bronze would heat up like an oven. It'd be like a blast furnace. And these arms are outstretched, and so to offer your child, typically your firstborn son, to the god Moloch, in the hopes of appeasing him and somehow gaining his favor, they would take that baby and lay it in the arms of Moloch and be consumed by the fire. And so this is the types of practices that Israel was participating in during this era. And the Israelite king that appears in our text in Isaiah chapter 7, he was no exception, and he continued with those evil practices. His name was Pika. Pika. Now, for the kids out there, this is not to be confused with Pikachu. This is not, not a Pokemon. 
But nonetheless, his name was King Pekah. He was the king of Israel, the northern kingdom during this time. During the same period of time, the, the king of the southern kingdom of Judah was ruled by a king named Ahaz. So we've got Pekah in the north, Ahaz in the south. Now Ahaz was the grandson of King Uzziah. King Uzziah had reigned over Judah for 50 years. And unlike the kings in the north, he had been a good king. He had led the nation to worship the one true God. And so this was a period of peace and blessing in the southern kingdom of Judah. However, if we go back to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, many of you will be familiar with this passage. For in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, we read that it was in the year that King Uzziah died that Isaiah saw a vision of God in the temple and was there called to be his prophet to the nation. And so here we see it's a time of, of upheaval. A good king, King Uzziah, has led the nation well. Under God for 50 years, he's died. And now Israel, pardon me, Isaiah, has to step in as a prophet to the nation. And so now Ahaz, the, the grandson of Uzziah, some years later, he has become the king of Judah. But unlike his grandfather, Ahaz does not follow the Lord. 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 2 and 3 describes his reign like this. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire, following the detestable ways of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. So here we see this chilling picture that both kingdoms... Israel in the north, Judah in the south, both kingdoms are worshiping idols and burning their sons on their altars. And, and this description here says they're now following in the detestable ways of the nations that the Lord had driven out before them. You remember our series in Exodus and then in Joshua, how they went to great lengths to drive out these pagan nations, to eradicate them, to, to get their pagan practices away and purify their nation, but now they have adopted them for themselves. And so, in case you haven't picked this up yet, when Isaiah comes onto the scene and this prophetic word is spoken, it is a very, very dark time. It's a dark time both politically and most especially spiritually. Politically and spiritually dark. Would that sound like a familiar description to our world today? What do you think? Would you describe our time as both politically and spiritually dark? You know, politically speaking, I have only to open my news app, and I'm sure I could flip it up right now and read the top ten news headlines, and not one of them would be positive. Not one. I guarantee you, you open up your news app, you flip on the six o'clock or the ten o'clock news, any given time, the stories are all negative. They're dark. They're depressing. There's upheaval, there's, there's tension, there's fighting. It's hard to know what to believe because everyone's shouting at the same time, saying the other side is, is terrible and wrong. And, and so we see this political drama and upheaval. We also see continual violence. And we see this going on in our nation. We see it going on in our own cities. We see it going on even in our rural areas where we see crime on the rise. And we look around the world and we see just violence everywhere, every continent, every nation. Then we have only to look again in our own nation to see all manner of sexual depravity. 
And we don't need to bother naming it all this morning because it's just so much of it and we're bombarded by it. We know it's there. It's just this ever-present sexual depravity all around us. And then, and I've got to pause here to, to put an emphasis on this point. This is all happening against the backdrop of the modern-day cult of Moloch. I'm not saying that metaphorically. I'm saying that literally. Abortion today is the same spirit of Moloch that that was inspiring the pagan people to sacrifice their children on the altar back in the days of Isaiah. That same evil spirit is at work in abortion today. The, the, the spirit of Moloch demanding the sacrifice of children is, is alive and well today as it has ever been in history. In fact, there are more children sacrificed to the idol of Moloch today than ever before in history simply by the numbers. Hundreds of thousands of children are aborted in Canada every single year. Millions in the United States. Millions in Europe aborted before they ever have a chance to draw their first breath. And so we read this in Scripture and we say, how horrific that they would put their child on these arms of Moloch. And yet, if any of you have seen the movie Unplanned, you know it's, it's not any different, my friends. It's the same. And so we have, to, we have to look at this for what it is. It's a cult of child sacrifice, all under the motto of it's a woman's right to choose what she wants to do with her own body, But the problem is her own body is linked to another body that is not her own. Well, I suppose in one way it is her right. It is her right to do with it what she will, just as it was King Ahaz's right to place his son on the flaming arms of Moloch, all perfectly legal according to the culture of the day. No law against it then or now. The king set the law in those days, and today there is no law against doing the same perfectly legal according to the culture's law. But what about God's law? What about the creator, the maker, the owner of all of these people who he is the author of life? What about his law? What does he think? What does he say about all of these practices and snuffing out the precious gift of life? And then, as now, make no mistake, they were living in a time where the light of God was being deliberately rejected in exchange for the darkness of the world and all of the pagan practices around them. They were following after the evil of the devil. And so under King Ahaz's rule, we see Judah's downward spiral begins to pick up speed. It begins in our, in our story this morning in Isaiah chapter 7. It's just like one short verse but it indicates a civil war takes place between the north and the south. A civil war where the Jews are fighting amongst themselves. Now King Pekah, not Pikachu, King Pekah of the northern kingdom of Israel, he wants to conquer and claim the city of Jerusalem for himself. Of course, you know, Jerusalem is the city of the Jews. He wasn't content to have Samaria as his own capital city. He wants Jerusalem. But he knows that Jerusalem is a formidable fortress. And so, in order to increase the size of his army and increase his strength, King Pekah looks outside of the Jewish nation, and he forges an alliance with the neighbor nation of Aram. And so, Aram is ruled by a man named King Rezin. 
And so they, they make this pact that they are together going to invade Judah and they are going to besiege and take Jerusalem. And Isaiah chapter 7 verse 1 tells us in brief what happened. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. So here we see a battle takes place. It's a civil war. Jerusalem is attacked, and what happens? They are not able to take it. And so the the defenders in Jerusalem, the forces of of King Arab, are able to repel the attackers. And so, at this point, it looks like, well, they're doing well. They've fought them off. They're doing okay. But you must remember, they just repelled them. They did not dispel them out of their nation. The combined armies of Israel and Aram are still besieging the city. And so at this point, they're, they're locked up. They're trapped inside the city. And they know that their attackers from the north could have a couple of other plans up their sleeve. One of them could be they could just bypass Jerusalem and take the rest of the country around it. And so there's a lot of things that are troubling them at this time. And Isaiah chapter 7 verse 2 tells us, The hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. So yes, they weren't overrun, but they are shaken to their core. Have you ever been shaken like that? Have you ever had just something sudden just hit you, and suddenly you're you're shaken in your boots? Uh, If you've ever had an experience like that, then you have some idea of what they are facing. And so here, Ahaz and the people of Jerusalem and the people of Judah are in this situation where they seem trapped, where things seem hopeless, and in their estimation, they're not getting better. And if you've ever been a time like that where it seems like things are getting worse and they're not getting better, well, you know how dark that feels, and you know how desperately in a time like that you need a word from the Lord. You need some touch from the Lord that reaches into your darkness to give you a message. And this is exactly what King Ahaz receives. Verse 3 tells us that the Lord directs Isaiah to meet with the king and to tell him this in verse 4. Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of those two smoldering stubs of firewood. Then moving ahead to verse 7, God declares that the war will not take place. It will not happen. And then he goes on to declare that in 65 years, Ephraim, which was another name for Israel, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. Now, this would have been a very hopeful, encouraging word for King Ahaz. But yet, King Ahaz has a choice, and his choice would decide the future and fate of the nation of Judah. His choice is this. He could either trust and receive the word of the Lord given through Isaiah. He could believe that God would protect Jerusalem and the city and and just take him at face value. Or... Here's the alternative. He could try to figure out how he, as a king, is going to defeat the combined armies of Israel and Aram on his own. Now, to us, this seems like a no-brainer, right? It, It just seems obvious that here, King Ahaz would trust God's extremely gracious word come under his protection. Seems obvious. 
But I want you to remember something very important here. Ahaz does not know the Lord God of Israel personally. Remember, he's been worshiping idols. Remember, he's already offered his own son as a burnt offering to Moloch. And so here's a man who doesn't know the Lord personally. He's heard of him, of course. But in the end, Ahaz does not listen to Isaiah. He does not trust that God is in control, and he does not believe that God will win him the victory. And so instead, he takes matters into his own hands. He goes and he cuts a deal with the Assyrian Empire further to the north with an alliance that he believes is going to protect him. However, in asking the Assyrians for help and coming under their protection, Judah actually becomes a vassal state of Assyria. And in case you don't know what that means, a vassal state is a holder of land by feudal tenure on conditions of homage and allegiance to the greater party. And so essentially, what this means is God had given Joshua and Israel and the people the land forever. It was their inheritance. But instead of trusting him to keep their inheritance, out of fear and out of his own human thinking, King Ahaz actually gives it away. He gives it away. Their birthright, like like Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of soup, here King Ahaz is selling the birthright of the people for, for this idea of protection. That they needed an, a pagan Assyrian empire's protection rather than the Lord's. And so after selling their birthright, becoming a vassal state, they're still able to live there, but just like Esau, their birthright is now gone. It's not coming back. And we have the hindsight of, or the benefit of hindsight to know how this turns out for Judah. For when Babylon rose to power and started to invade their lands, Assyria was not there to rescue them. Eventually, Nebuchadnezzar besieged and attacked Jerusalem and then burned it to the ground, including the temple. And where were the Assyrians? They were nowhere to be found. But even if they had tried, they couldn't have saved them. Because God was their protector. And to replace him for another was to give it away. And so that's what Ahaz does. And so we ask the question this morning, what can we learn from his actions, the actions of King Ahaz? Well, this Advent season, the first thing we can learn from his actions is this. We need to remember that God is our protector. God is our protector. We don't have to look very far to see things that we would like protection from either. Right? We all want to be protected from the things that threaten us, that scare us. And so our instinct is to set up our own defenses and then to look for those who are stronger than us to protect us. And while, yes, sometimes when we are facing dark times, whether politically or spiritually or personally, we too can forget that God is our protector. You know, it's not any politician, any policeman, pastor, or physician who can ultimately protect us. Only God can. God is our protector. Period. It was during World War II that a U.S. Marine was separated from his unit in the Pacific Islands while they were fighting the Japanese. And the fighting had become intense and the smoke and the crossfire had had gotten him disoriented. And so alone in the jungle, he could hear the enemy soldiers coming in his direction. And so he began scrambling for cover and he found his way up a high ridge 
to a series of several small caves in the rock. And so quickly, he scrambles inside one of these caves. And he knows he's safe for the moment, but then he realizes that the enemy soldiers are now looking systematically for any of the soldiers who might have escaped the battle. And so sweeping up the ridge, they are now beginning to systematically look through all of the caves. And the ones where they're not even sure about, they're throwing grenades or firebombs inside. And so he realizes that suddenly his situation that seems so secure has suddenly become a death sentence. And so he's desperate and he prays to the Lord in this moment, Lord, if it be your will, please protect me. But whatever you will, I love you and I trust you. Amen. And so he lies there, quietly listening as the enemy draws closer. And he thinks to himself, well, I guess the Lord isn't going to help me get out of this one. And then suddenly he sees a spider begin to build a web over the front of his cave. And as he watched and he listened to the enemy searching all around him, the spider is strand upon strand layering this across the opening of the cave. And he laughs ironically to himself thinking, what I need is a brick wall and the Lord is sending me a spider? That's not going to stop anything. God does have a sense of humor, though. As the enemy draws closer, he watched from the darkness of his hideout, and he could see then, as they searched one cave after another, they finally searched the one right next to his, then they came to the entrance of his. He got ready to make his last stand, knowing this was it. And to his amazement, after glancing in the direction of the cave, they moved on. And suddenly it dawned on him, that with the spider web covering the entrance, his cave looked as if no one had entered it for a very long time. And he prayed a prayer of repentance, and he said, Lord, forgive me. I had forgotten that in you a spider's web is stronger than a brick wall. Isn't that how God works? In mysterious and incredible ways. We think protection has to look like one thing, and God can do it in an entirely different way that we would never expect. And so, too, we all face times of great trouble. We face times where we may, too, lose hope. And when we do, it is easy to forget that the victories that God would work in our lives come about in the most surprising of ways when we but put our trust in him. We call upon him to be our protector and don't look elsewhere. Like Isaiah reminded Ahaz so many years ago, we, too, need to be reminded this Christmas that God is our protector. And so we should place our hope in him alone and then watch how he works. Secondly, we need to stretch our faith by asking God for what we need. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 9, the Lord is still speaking to Ahaz and he says to him, If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Then verse 11, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights, But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now here we see something very unique. And this is where God actually instructs Ahaz to ask him for a sign. He tells him. It's one of the only places in the Bible where God actually tells someone, ask me for a sign and you can even pick what it's going to be. Now this brings to to mind the time where Gideon Uh, he does the fleece thing where he's like, Lord, I need a sign. God didn't invite him for it, but God still graciously gave him the sign. But here God is actually inviting, encouraging Ahaz to ask for whatever sign he could think of for God to prove to him 
that he was going to do what he had said, protect the nation, and he could do it in whatever way he wanted. Now, that's amazing, right? Who of us wouldn't want that opportunity to be like, okay, I get to pick what it's going to be? All right, I got to use my imagination, right? We could think of some pretty wild things. And so, with this invitation in hand, we see God's mercy. We see God's merciful and loving offer to Ahaz, because remember, King Ahaz is not a good guy. This is not a guy who loves the Lord, who's been following him faithfully. No, this is a guy who's offered his son to Moloch. And so here God is giving this essentially pagan behaving king this incredible opportunity. Ask me for a sign, name it, and I will do it. And the reason God showed such mercy to King Ahaz is because God's desire was to show mercy to the entire nation. He wanted to spare Judah. He wanted them to see that he, their God, was still in kind. He still had good plans for them, even though they had turned to idols. But Ahaz responded to God's invitation by refusing to ask. And he piously claims that he would not put God to the test. But God's response is is obvious. Now you're trying my patience. Because remember, God is the one that invited Ahaz to ask. And so here we see that asking God for a sign was not the problem. It was Ahaz's refusal to ask for a sign that was the problem and which tested God's patience. And I think sometimes we might be a little bit like that. Sometimes we are afraid to ask God for what we really need. And let me just clarify that there's a difference between what we really need and what we really want, right? We all know there's a difference between what we want and what we need. But God wants and invites us, in fact, to ask him to meet our needs. And so whatever that might be in the circumstances that you're facing today or living in, James chapter 4 verse 2 states the obvious. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not have because you do not ask. Here, Ahaz is told, ask me, ask me. And he says, no, won't do it, won't ask. Don't we do the same sometimes? We just refuse to ask, and in our own stubborn pride, we think, I'm not going to ask, I'm going to do this myself. I'm going to do this my way. And that's exactly what he was thinking. Likewise, the Lord Jesus encouraged his disciples in Matthew 7, verse 11. He says, if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? Ask him. Now, if you think that you have to first have your act all together before you can go into his presence and make your requests before him, I want to remind you that King Ahaz was an idolater who had sacrificed his own child to Moloch. Not exactly the type of guy that you would expect God to invite into his presence. But my friends, that's exactly the point, isn't it? It's exactly the point. None of us are the type. None of us are the type. We are all marred by sin. We all have a debt to pay that we cannot. We are all bruised and broken in some way. We all have our own sins, our own fears, our own failures. We all have our own doubts of God. 
And yet our God mercifully, graciously, lovingly, incredibly still desires us to come to him and ask, just as we are, broken as we are, to ask and to receive from him just what we need, not because we are worthy or even deserving, but because he is so merciful and loving and gracious. Paul Harvey used to tell the story of the three-year-old boy who went to the grocery store with his mother. And before they entered the grocery store, she said to him, Now, you are not going to get any chocolate chip cookies, so don't even bother asking. And with those firm instructions implanted in the three-year-old's mind, she put him in the cart, and he sat in the child's seat while she wheeled down the aisles, and he was doing just fine until they came past the cookie section. And he saw there those chocolate chip cookies, and he just couldn't help himself. And he stands up in his seat, and he says, Mommy, can I have some chocolate chip cookies? She says, I told you not even to ask. You're not getting any chocolate chip cookies. She sat him back down and continued down the aisles. But in their search for certain items, they ended up going past the cookie aisle once more. And again, the little boy jumped up on the seat and piped up, Mommy, can I please have some chocolate chip cookies? Please, please, please. And she said, I told you, you can't have any. Sit down and be quiet. Well, finally, they were approaching the checkout lane, and the little boy knew this was his last chance. It was now or never. And so just before they got he stood up in the seat of his cart, and he shouted as loud as voice, In the name of Jesus, may I please have some chocolate chip cookies? And everyone around looked at this boy and just began to laugh and snicker. Some even applauded this boy's bold request in Jesus' name. And then with the outpouring of, of humor and generosity of the other shoppers, suddenly as the, as the mother is taking the, she's embarrassed, she's red, and she's trying to get through the checkout line as quick as possible, and suddenly chocolate chip cookies and packages began to just show up in their cart, paid for by the other customers. And when they left the store that day, the little boy and his mother left with 23 boxes of chocolate chip cookies. What an amazing story that points to the generosity of our God. Our God is not stingy. He is generous. And so this Advent, I want you to just stretch your faith by asking God for what you need. And you may just be surprised by what you receive. Because often it's not even exactly what we ask for, but much, much better. Because God truly knows what we need. And he invites us to ask, just like that child did. Thirdly, God graciously gives even to those who have not asked. Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign, trying God's patience. But watch this. God is so generous that he graciously gives him a sign anyways. Isaiah 7.14 Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, the miraculous sign of the virgin giving birth to a son would identify this child as different, as set apart from all others born to earthly fathers. This child would be the son of God. This child would be the light that would dispel the darkness and the despair, the hope 
that would conquer fear. One that even death itself could not extinguish. In his book, Viktor Frankl tells of his years trapped in the horrors of the German concentration camps of Auschwitz and Dachau. He says, transported there like an animal, dehumanized in every possible way, and condemned to a fate worse than death. His parents, brother, and wife all died in the camps. His existence was full of cold, fear, starvation, pain, lice, vermin, and terror. When a prisoner lost hope, Frankel wrote, he let himself decline, becoming subject to mental and physical decay. He would die from the inside out. Frankel said this usually happened quite suddenly. One morning, a prisoner would just refuse to get up. He wouldn't get dressed or wash or go outside to the parade grounds for roll call. And no amount of pleading by his fellow prisoners would have any effect. Losing all hope, he had simply given up. And he would lie there in his bunk until he died. Frankel wrote that the only reason that he survived, the only thing that set him apart from those other men who stayed in their bunks, was that he had never lost hope. He had never lost hope. So is there any hope? The word is yes. The word is yes. There is hope. Because the same hope that was true for ancient Judah is still our enduring and eternal hope today. Not through princes, not through politics, not through prosperity, not through power. Our hope is through a child, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus. He is our protector. He is our provider. And he is our savior. Amen. Lord Jesus, all of our hope is in you and in you alone. Father, forgive us for all of the times where we have looked for hope elsewhere. For all of the times we have pinned hope in our own abilities, in, in ourselves, in the more powerful around us, in, in systems, in governments, in men. But Lord, our hope, our enduring hope, our eternal hope can be found in none of those places. Only in you, only in you, do we have a hope for today and an eternal and enduring hope for tomorrow and for eternity. Because you, Jesus, the light of the world, came and dispelled the darkness. We thank you that this hope was spoken all those years ago and that today we live in the reality of the fulfillment of that hope that you came. But even more, Lord, we live in the anticipation of you coming again, where this hope will be ours forever in a kingdom without end, with you on the throne. We look forward with hope in our hearts to that day. And that hope translates to us in our lives, whatever our circumstances, what we're facing right now, it changes our perspective. Because whatever the gloom today, we have hope in you through it all and for tomorrow. And so we place our hope in you. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.